Let me invite you to grab your Bible to Romans chapter 3. I have only been to court once in my life. It was a, a bank heist gone wrong, and I was the getaway driver. Um, I'm kidding. That would be much more, much more interesting. No, I was actually I was in court one time to support a lady in our church in Tennessee. Her, her son was facing sentencing for a crime that he'd committed, and she had asked if I would come to court and sit with her and support and pray, so I did. But, man, I was nervous. Like, I hadn't done anything wrong, at least that day. Uh, but I was nervous going to court. Because everybody's so serious and intense. And I had to walk through these metal detectors to get in the building. You couldn't bring your phone inside or anything. And I go into the courtroom. It's really quiet. People are whispering. And there's all these people in suits. And they got their folders. And you're sitting on these hard wooden benches. Then the bailiff comes in. He says, all right. What does everybody do? Everybody stands up. I didn't know what to do. I'm, all right, stand up. Judge comes in. Boy, he looks serious. He looks scary. He had the robe on. He had that wooden gavel. And the lady's son from our church, she, he went before him, and he asked him some questions. The judge asked him. The judge thought for a minute. And then he sentenced him to prison. And just like that, they took him away. And I thought, man, this <laughs> it's intense. This morning, we are all going on trial. Yes, all of us are going to stand before the judge today and find out our verdict. Not literally, we're not going to have to get out and drive anywhere, but we're going to be put on trial through our passage in the book of Romans. If you've been with us, that's where we've been, walking through this letter verse by verse, through a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And these first three chapters we established are the bad news of the gospel. Before Paul can lay out why the gospel is good news, we've got to understand why it's bad, why the bad news is so bad. So we saw that all of us have a problem, and that problem at its root is what's called sin. Though we know God, we have suppressed the truth about him. We've rejected him and worshipped idols. We've sinned against him in every way possible. And then we talked about morality and religion. While they might be good things, they cannot make us right with God. They cannot fix our broken relationship or take away our sin. No matter how good of a life we might live, no matter how many religious acts we might perform or how many rules we might keep, we cannot fix ourselves. So now in today's passage, in light of all we've seen thus far, Paul is going to call us before the judge this is no ordinary human judge. No, this is the one who created us. The one who holds our very breath in his hands. The one, therefore, that we must give an account to for our lives. This is God's courtroom. He's the judge. And we're not in the crowd. We're not in the jury. We're not the lawyers. We're not on the witness stand. No, we're the ones on trial. So let's see how our case unfolds as we walk through this important text. Look with me now at Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and we're just going to take this piece by piece. Paul begins, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Uh, like a lead prosecutor, Paul's been building his case thus far. He's been compiling the evidence, and now he's ready to show the court what he's found. You'll remember that at the end of chapter 1, Paul focused on the Gentiles. This was anyone who was not a Jew, like me and you. These were the people who didn't know God's law. They weren't from God's chosen people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. They were outsiders. 
Paul explained that even though the Gentiles did not receive the Ten Commandments like Israel did, they still knew God, and yet they chose to reject him. So he indicted the Gentiles and all the Jewish people who weren't in that first part. They're nodding their heads. They're saying, Paul, yep, take them to jail. They're guilty. And then he turned on a dime right toward the Jews. And he explained that even though the Israelites had God's law and were circumcised and were very religious, they were actually just as messed up as the Gentiles. They were hypocrites. They'd sinned in the same ways, and they too had earned God's judgment. So then came the objections. That was last week. Don't you love on those TV shows? Anybody watch the Law and Order or those court TV shows where the attorney, he always cries out, Objection, Your Honor! I've always wanted to do that. thought that would be cool. But Paul, he, he, did, he took a minute to deal with some objections he'd faced to his argument. People were asking things like, Paul, I thought the Jews were God's chosen people. Has God given up on them? Is the Old Testament all for nothing? And how is this fair that a good and loving God can judge people? So we talked about how, yeah, the Jews certainly had an advantage. They did know the law. They did know God. They had all these great stories and promises. But you know what? They still didn't get it. Despite their great privilege, they threw it all away. So if anything, the Jewish people were in an even worse situation because they had the truth, and yet they rejected it. So Paul begins verse 9. Watch that. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. In other words, the Jews are not getting a free pass. They aren't getting special treatment even though they have a special privilege. There are no get-out-of-hell-free cards. And Paul says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everyone, all people, including you, including me, have been charged with the crime of sin. And it's important that we understand just how serious this really is. I think many people today, including many Christians, we, we minimize and belittle the seriousness of sin. Think about what the Bible tells us about how serious sin is. From the very beginning, sin destroyed Adam and Eve's relationship with God and got them kicked out of the garden. Sin led the first child to kill his own brother in cold blood. Sin caused God to flood the earth and destroy every living being except Noah's family and the animals on the ark. Sin caused God to destroy entire nations and even take the nation of Israel, his people, into slaves, into exile. And ultimately, sin caused the Son of God to be nailed to the cross. That was the cost of our sin. And Paul shows us here in these next verses that the seriousness of our sinful condition by quoting several Old Testament verses. He's pointing back. So let's look at each of these and see what they show us about sin. Look at verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Uh, these references come from Psalm 14, and Paul uses them to illustrate his main point, that everyone is a sinner. And look at the words that are repeated there. It's, it's none, no one, not even one. All of us fall in this category of sinner needing a Savior. But this verse also tells us something else about the seriousness of sin. Not only are we sinners, but we are not righteous. We do not understand. We do not seek God. We do not do good. Here's what this tells us. Sin is serious because we are radically corrupt. I want to teach you a few theological terms that I think can help us this morning explain the seriousness of sin. Maybe you've heard some of these words. But the first one is what's called original sin. 
What this means is that because of Adam and Eve's fall and sin in the garden, every person born after that, which is every person, is born into sin. We are not born innocent and sweet as we look. (laughs) We are born sinners. We are born with corrupted natures from our very first breath. And if you have toddlers like I do, you say amen. R.C. Sproul, famous author, pastor, he said it like this. He said, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The next theological term that's really helped me understand sin is what's called total depravity. This refers to the idea that every part of us is corrupted by our sin. Our bodies are corrupted. Our minds, our hearts, our desires. We aren't mostly good people with a few struggles. Apart from Christ, we're rotten through and through. So we can't just clean up the outside, the surface, and change our behavior and fix and tweak a few minor things. No, what we need is heart surgery. We need to be radically changed into a new person. That's why this verse says, no one does good. Really? No one? We understand we all do some morally good things from time to time. We help people. We're kind. Even the worst person on earth loves his own mama. But this verse tells us that even the good things we do are tainted with sin. We often do good things for the wrong reasons, with sinful motivations. Paul's going to tell us later in Romans 14, 23, that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, even if it looks good on the outside. What good is our good if it's not really good? Because we're so radically corrupt, the Bible says we're not righteous. We do not have moral ground to stand on. We don't even understand. We don't even seek for God, much less have a relationship with him. And this speaks of all of us. Let's keep going. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. These verses come from Psalm 5 and 10. And they give an example of just how sin has corrupted us. They describe specifically the way that sin has affected our speech. Notice, he talks about our throat, tongue, lips, and then the mouth. The idea is that the way we talk is evidence of our sinful corruption. We deceive. We curse. Our language is venomous. This is why James said this in James 3, 5-8. This is crazy. He said, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The way we talk things we say, this is clear evidence of how broken we are by sin. That's why Jesus said, you want to know what's in someone's heart? Listen for what comes out of their mouth. Do you want to know what someone's really like? You follow them around for a day and listen to what they say. Our speech makes audible the corruption of our hearts. Let's keep going. Verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. These verses come from Isaiah 59, and and here we see sin's corrupting effect on our actions. It brings murder and misery and and chaos. So here's what this section of verses on our, our speech and our actions tell us about the seriousness of sin. 
Sin is serious because it's incredibly destructive. When we sin, things get broken. Relationships, families, societies, nations, people's souls. And we see this throughout the Bible. Think about the sins of Adam and Eve and David and the nation of Israel and all this destruction that followed. Think about history, just what we've seen in our lifetimes, all the chaos that has resulted from people's choices to sin against God. Many of us have experienced this personally. Maybe you've experienced firsthand the destruction of sin. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was your parents, someone else in your family, your spouse, maybe even your pastor. And you still today bear the burden of sin's destruction in your life. And we feel this. We, we sense it in our culture. All we have to do is turn on the TV, get on Facebook, open up a newspaper. We see it everywhere. Like our world is fundamentally broken because of sin. And the only reason this place is holding together at all is because of God's grace. But again, let's make something clear. It's not just out there. It's not just those people. It's in here. It's in us. We are a part of the destruction. And yet we try and say things like, well, I'm, I'm not hurting anybody. Sin always hurts people. It always affects others, even if it's secret or private. Or, or we say things like, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. I'm not, I'm not doing all that. Sin is always destructive. There's always consequences, even when it's small. So could I just plead with you for a moment? I mean, I say this, not, I say this from personal experience, not as someone who's like above you, as some kind of holy preacher or someone who has it all together. I say this from a humble heart knowing I'm a sinner too. But if there's a particular ongoing sin struggle in your life that you're keeping in the dark, meaning you're hiding it really well from others, it's time to expose it. Please bring it into the light. Reach out to someone who can help for the sake of your family, for the sake of this church, for the sake of the name of Jesus. Destroy your sin before it destroys you. We see this so often. As a pastor, I just think about all how much pain and chaos could be prevented if we would deal with things before it's too late. And I want you to know if you're hearing my voice right now, it's not too late. You can turn back. And this is God's call. You've been looking for a sign. This is it. Okay. <laughs> This is God's call to come back, to give it up, to turn away. We can always be forgiven, but we cannot unsin. The consequences are devastating. And yet, it gets worse. Look at verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This comes from Psalm 36.1, and it gets at the heart of what sin is really about. We don't fear God. We don't even think of him. We sin. We do what we want. We feel nothing because we don't care. And that's the scariest thing. We see that in our world today, people living in reckless sin, and yet they don't have a clue they're even doing anything wrong. Worse still is when people are destroying their lives, and yet we encourage it. Our society cheers it on. We celebrate the things that God hates that hurt people. Or we excuse it and we look the other way because it's, it's uncomfortable or we, we like this power that we have. And this is my problem. This is your problem too. We don't fear God. We fear a lot of other things. We fear what people think. 
We fear losing our health, our money, our job. We fear losing political power. We fear the future. We fear the past. And yet we do not fear the one who controls all of it. This is what's at the heart of our sin. When we sin, we are not first and foremost sinning against another person or against ourselves, but we are sinning against God. We are attacking and belittling him, spitting in his face, rejecting his reign and rule. We're attempting to steal his glory and defame his name. Sin is serious. And we're being charged today as sinners. That's what Paul wants us to see. So here's the first thing we learn about our standing in God's courtroom. Number one, we all stand guilty. We need to really get this this morning. The jury is not out for deliberation. There's no more evidence to be presented. We cannot take the stand to plead our own case. The verdict is already in. Paul's not saying, hey, stop sinning and try your best to be good and do good. And maybe by the end of your life, by the time you stand before God in judgment, he'll see how hard you tried and how much good you did and he'll let you into heaven. No, that's not how it works. It's too late for that. It's not up for debate. We in our own power can't change our situation. The verdict is in and we are guilty now. The reality is this is not something I need to convince you of. You feel it. You felt it before. That deep sense of shame, of brokenness that I need to hide who I really am. We even see it in our kids. My one-year-old, he's been on this planet for 20 months And yet, he knows the difference between right and wrong. (laughs) He knows when he's doing something that I told him not to do. For example, I say, Ben, please don't climb on the fireplace. So what does he do? He looks at me to see if I'm looking. His eyes get big. Sometimes he has a dubious little smile. And the worst part, he looks like me. (laughs) It's terrible. I see see myself and I think, oh, no. (laughs) And then what does he do? He climbs on the fireplace. And then when I get on to him, he'll run away. Or he'll refuse to look at me. He'll bury his head and hide. You can just see the guilt in his adorable little eyes. (laughs) But we all know this experience of, of guilt and shame. We feel this kind of brokenness. So what do we do? Well, we try a lot of things to fix the problem ourselves. We've talked about morality and religion. We know there are other ways to drown out our pain or to cover it up with relationships or money or work or success or infinite other pleasurable things. But no matter how hard we try, the guilt remains. We can't get clean. We stand guilty. And that's our first point. Let's keep going. Verses 19 and 20. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. These two verses really sum up Paul's whole argument in Romans 1 through 3 up to this point. We all know what God requires. We've all broken his law. We're all guilty. So he says, every mouth is stopped and the whole world is held accountable. This is courtroom imagery. This is a picture of a guilty defendant who has nothing more they can say. Has that ever happened to you where you've been like busted in the wrong and you you can't even like say anything because it's just so obvious that you're in trouble? That's the idea here. Your mouth is shut. 
And that word accountable, that means answerable to. Again, the picture here is all of us, we're in court and we're standing before God. We're accountable to him and therefore we must answer to him. He's the judge. Uh, sometimes when I, I get in conversation with people and we're talking about life and, hey, you know, where are you from and how many kids you got? And I always don't look forward to the question that they will inevitably ask me, what do you do for a living? <laughs> Because I'll say, well, I'm a pastor. And without fail, they will feel the need to apologize to me for something. <laughs> like if they use the bad language or coarse words, they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm, I didn't know. I'm so sorry for what I said. Like apparently you can't say bad words in front of a preacher. I don't know. Uh, but I, I want to tell those people I don't because that would just affirm the preacher stereotype. But I want to say to them, I want to say, look, it's not me you should be worried about. I'm not anyone's judge. I'm not the one you will give an account to. It's God you will stand before. And I think then the conversation would probably be over, so I don't say that. But you know, some people think that's better. I saw a bumper sticker recently that said, only God can judge me. I'm thinking, you think that's a good thing? You know God knows everything you've ever done, even things no one else knows about, even things done behind a closed door, long buried in your past. God was there. He knows every thought you've ever had, every word you've ever spoken. He's seen it and knows it. That's the one you're going to stand before and give an account to. That's not something to put on the car. <laughs> and no one will get a pass, Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Again, we've got this legal courtroom language to, to justify someone is to declare them innocent. And in biblical terms, it means even more than that. It's to declare someone righteous before God. And here Paul reminds us again something we've said over and over and over. There is no work we can do to be justified. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. This means there's nothing anyone will be able to say to justify or defend themselves when they stand before God. It doesn't matter if it's Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or the Apostle Paul himself. No one will be able to stand before God and say, Now God, remember what I did for you. Do you remember all those good things I did and how spiritual it was? Surely I'm innocent, right? We know many people will try this route. They will make an appeal. It's another court term. They will appeal to their church membership or their baptism or their Bible with their name written in the front of it. They'll tell God that they came from a Christian family. They tried their best to live a good and decent life. They walked an aisle when they were a kid. People will attempt to justify themselves by works of the law, but it won't work. And as a result, not only do we stand before God guilty, but here's the second way we stand in the courtroom of God. Number two, we all stand condemned. The judge has decided on our sentencing, and we get the death penalty. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. In other words, because of our sin, we have earned death. That's the punishment. For living a life of sin against the holy and perfect God. And this is not just physical death. We know it's, it's spiritual death too. There are only two places people go, can go when they die. Both are eternal, but they could not be more different. There's heaven, which is eternal life with God. And then there's hell, which is eternal death. And the sentence that you and I have received based on our personal record is hell. That's what we deserve. 
And I want us to feel the weight of that. Like even if you're a Christian and you know you're going to heaven when you die, it's still true that hell is what you deserve. Like, do you get that? Do you believe that? That every moment above ground, every breath in your lungs, every day you get out of bed is an undeserved gift from God. This is the place where Paul has led us, and we cannot go on. We cannot read the rest of this book until we feel this, until we linger here, until we grasp the seriousness of our condition and and how desperately we need salvation. We need help. We need something drastic, something radical to fix this problem. We need a miracle. And it's got to be something from outside of ourselves because I got myself into this mess. I cannot get myself out. We need a Savior, and praise God, we've got one. I'll never forget a, a scene that I encountered in high school at a judgment house. Did you guys ever go to one of those? They're kind of like the Christian version of a haunted house. You, these were plays that were put on by churches, and you would go from room to room watching these different scenes of a story play out. And there was always a Christian and someone who wasn't, and they both died in some tragic way, and you actually followed one person to hell and then followed one person to heaven. And I wasn't a huge fan because there was some manipulation involved. Like, hell was really scary, and they kind of scared some people into heaven, so it's a little weird. But there was this one scene I still remember to this day. We are sitting in the church sanctuary, and it was set up like a courtroom. And the guy in the story we'd been following, I can't remember what he did, but he was up front as the defendant. And it was this dramatic scene where he's pleading his case and the judge declares him guilty and he hammers the gavel and the guards come to handcuff him and take him away. When from the back of the room behind us, someone screams out, wait. And we look back behind us and coming down the aisle was Jesus carrying the cross. And he said, wait, take me instead of him. I'll take his place. I remember thinking, that's it. That's it. That's the only way. If I'm guilty of sin and I've been condemned to eternal death, that's what I deserve, then I need someone to save me by taking my place. And that's what Jesus has done. Jesus went to the cross in your place. He got the guilt so we could get innocence. He got death so we could get life. He got condemnation so we could get freedom. This is why Jesus is our only hope of salvation. There's no other way. Nothing else will do. He's the only one who could fix this problem. He's the only one who could take away our guilt. He's it. He's our Savior. And he calls out to us today. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how many, much baggage is in your past or how terrible you feel today, he says, come follow me. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Follow me and be free. And we say, Jesus, I'm guilty. I sinned. I did it. And he says, I know. I took that. But Jesus, I've been condemned to death. You don't understand. This is what I deserve. And he says, I know, but your sentence has already been served. I died in your place. But Jesus, you didn't deserve that. You were perfect. I'm the one who did it. I deserve it. He says, I know. But I love you. And I want you to be free. This is the gospel. This is why we say, I stand amazed. We're standing there guilty, condemned to die, no hope for anything, and suddenly we're free. 
not because of anything we've done, but solely because of Jesus, the chains fell off. How would that change your life? How should it change your life? How should that change the way you live? When a guilty man on death row walks out free, how differently would his life look? That's the power of the gospel. That's what should be evident in our lives because we've received the same. We were on trial, guilty and condemned, all of us, but Christ has made us free. So here's the question. Will you follow him? Will you trust him in what he's done? Do you want to be free? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.